Reverend Lennox Yearwood, welcome to the new school. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, may I call you Rev? That's the, the name that you suggested I call you when we first met. That's what everybody calls me. Okay. Even my mom. Okay. So, Rev, uh, in Wikipedia, you're listed as a minister, a community activist, and one of the most influential people in hip-hop political life. You serve as president of the Hip-Hop Caucus in Washington, D.C., which is a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that engages young people in urban communities in elections, policymaking, and service projects. So that's what Wikipedia says. What would you add to that about the Hip Hop Caucus? What I would add to that would be uh, the Hip Hop Caucus Education Fund is a civil and human rights organization for the 21st century. And it is an organization that allows for its members and um, other leaders to all be on the same platform, that it's created in the 21st century for 21st century problems, so that even in my position as president and CEO, um, the intern off the street uh, feels a great uh, connection with me because one, we're usually not that far apart in age, but two, we we share the same culture and we see things very, in a very similar light. So I think that's the difference, and I think that's very similar to how it was for particularly groups like the um, like SNCC, uh, the Southern Nonviolence Coordinating Committee, um, like uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, very similar to those organizations in the 20th century, um, we have a very similar feel in the 21st century. I had that sense, and I, I want you to help me understand. Would you say that culture that you share is uh, best uh, described as hip-hop uh, hip culture, or is hip-hop culture just one of the, the languages for that culture that you're describing? I think it's one of the languages. The, the name can be a little um, uh, misleading to those outside. Um, uh, it's, 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 to, to many people, hip-hop comes across as a um, music or entertainment form, um, but it is also kind of a code for this generation. It's a code because um, it's a part of their culture, and they even if they don't like the music, <laughs> They are a part of the culture. And so a lot of times we actually sometimes say the words hip means to inform and the words hop means to move someone to action. And so uh -huh. hip-hop for us isn't so much around the entertainment side or the music side as much more as it is to how do we um, uh, hip or inform or then have, have our community hop. And, and move to action. And so I think that's one of the things, and I think it has also been one of the things that has protected um, this organization from being able to be created. It's a long way to go. Uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult in its creation, um, but 
I think that the one thing that happens, particularly for young people, and I think young people meaning even those who were young once and who were born in the 50s, those who were young once in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and now 90s, I think what has happened is that there has been, uh, particularly in the progressive movement, um, there's been a situation where uh, there's been a kitty table that has been established so that if you're a young person, you're instantly kind of put at this kitty table. Um, and even then, usually uh, organizations kind of cherry-pick uh, who they kind of feel are the next leaders or the emerging leaders. Um, with the Abba Caucus, it kind of is very much a throwback. And so it is, a, it is an organization that is, one, we're not cherry-picking our leaders. It's, it's all coming in from the community. But also, it allows for when how Dr. King, who was 29, 39 when he died, um, and others who were very young, like um, from Abby Hoffman on the anti-war movement to Malcolm X or even Gandhi, who were young people when they got started, but to be leaders and not to and to be able to say and 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 be able to craft the message and craft the mission. I think that's the thing behind the Hip Hop Caucus, and I think that's the reason why it's been successful, is because while we kind of use it's not it's somewhat changed now, but in the beginning we kind of used hip hop almost as a defense mechanism so that we could operate because we knew a lot of the older generation didn't they didn't have hip hop. It was the one thing that they didn't have, so they couldn't really claim it. It's kind of like Twitter now and Facebook, so they couldn't claim it. So we were able to utilize it as a method of, of organizing under that banner. That's very helpful. And for those who are not so familiar with hip-hop as a culture, it, it emerged, if I remember correctly, from the Bronx, didn't it, in the 1970s or something like that? It did. It emerged out of the Bronx. Um, the, many, I'm sure many listeners probably know of, of, uh, of uh, Robert Moses, the Highway Baron, um, who pretty much was at the time building the highways forty mm-hmm. some years ago, which was splitting urban communities and then creating it so that people were coming in from the suburbs and then literally uh, communities were being left behind and so the Bronx being one of those communities literally being passed over because of the highway um, and beginning to fall into urban decay um, you know begin to begin to eat like most cultures using music, um, not so much at the time for just entertainment, but also as their own way to inform and to speak truths of what's going on. Um, so they began to create this, this genre, and uh, it, be, it was created out of that. And so they began to speak their own type of CNN at the time and began to communicate. Um, it wasn't commercialized. It was this kind of hybrid um, music selection that was from had come over from Jamaica, the large Caribbean population, and the Bronx and New York at the time, and it kind of came together with the new uh, the turntables and other things that were that were merging all together in one to create this kind of dance culture and form, and so um, that began to be the and the, the beginning the spoken word, and then it began to go out all throughout the boroughs of New York. Um, and it's like most freedom music um, um, throughout history. 
uh, even from slavery, uh, down by the riverside, had very little to do about Jesus, as it meant that this is where, this is the escape route out of the plantation. And so that was, the music then began, particularly in the early 70s, um, the music was beginning to be an escape route or a message of what is going on um, in urban communities or in the hood. Now, there was a DJ named, I believe, Africa Bombada. Is yeah. that right? And Africa Bombada and DJ Cool Herc. And he outlined four pillars of hip-hop culture, MCing, DJing, b-boying, and graffiti writing. And I'm, I'm familiar with MCing and DJing, but what's b-boying? Uh, B-boying is, uh, you're familiar with that too. That's, that's dancing. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so right. you're, just, <laughs> so right. you're, you're familiar with that one as well. All right. <laughs> and so, the, the, would you agree those were four of the pillars of hip hop culture? Yeah, I think it probably, you know, the great thing about Africa Bombada and, like I said, DJ Cool Herc and DJ Red Alert and all of those uh, DJs at the time, um, I think that, you know, like anything, I don't think it probably was. A, a, a set of they now have the four pillars and they quickly emerged uh, after they, the you know it became more of a a force but I think in the beginning I don't I think it just kind of grew into that mm-hmm. so but you use the term in as you said a broader sense than the music yeah much broader mm-hmm. um, and again you know it's like like anything uh, from you know those, even those who were born in the 70s, mm-hmm. um, they are now in their 40s. You know, DJ African Mabada and, and Kool Herc and Red Alert are now in their, they're now in their 50s. They're older than the president, <laughs> who himself was in Columbia when uh, Run DMC was coming out. So that's one of the reasons why there's a, probably an affinity with the president and, and hip-hop. Now, do we know he listens to, to hip-hop? Oh, yeah. No, he, he has stated that. He has it on his iPod. and I mean, again, he was in grad school in New York City. Right, <laughs> At right. the time of Run DMC. Right. So, you know, if you were a young fellow, uh, and the great thing about, and I think this is important to note here, one of the things, too, about hip-hop, it is one of the first genres that is also not just coming out of, of an environment of the urban community. It is also very much mixed racially mix it becomes it become mixed uh, from a geographical sense and so i think that has a huge important in it play into how we use it and when we got into hip-hop political um when that emerged in the end of the at the end of the 20th century i meant to be in the beginning of the 21st century uh, hip-hop now is now an international uh phenom and is now throughout every part of this country and that that Mixed racially that you described, that seems to be, for as a 67-year-old man that I am, born in 1943, but it seems to be one of the truly beautiful qualities of, of your generation or your community, that uh, ethnic racial uh, diversity is really a sort of a kind of taken for granted as a fundamental value. It is. It's the one thing that amazes me about the generation before, and you mentioned you know, particularly those who are in your age frame um, and a little older. It amazes me because it is the victory of what 
most people like yourself were fighting for. What we fought for, that's right. And it almost is kind of now, it is the thing that I think misses within the movement because it should be the one thing that should be the most encouraging that at a time throughout humanity, when we see humanity really not moving forward and moving backwards, we saw in this country that we had a place where we were, we were, we were divided racially in a very troubling way. And people put their lives on the line, not just black people, but white and black, Christian and Jewish, Muslim, and all types of people put their lives on the line so that now, 40 years later, while there are still pockets and there's still manifestations of, you know, race and people still being stuck in their old ways, as a culture for my generation, it is almost a foregone conclusion that we are all together. There isn't even a notion of what a water fountain looks like being for colored only. There isn't even a notion of understanding what it even means to have certain parts of the highway you can drive on or certain hotels you can go to or certain teams being all black baseball or certain teams being all black, all white baseball. Or There isn't even a notion. I mean, there are the books that let us know that that was, that was the case. But I think that that's the one thing from a movement that I think is the most troubling because those who fought for that to happen almost now just they themselves almost dismiss it as it should I guess it is and that is such a wonderful victory and I think that's one thing that's now missing in our movement going forward. Well, I think that's true, and I think that part of the reason I so much wanted to talk with you is that. I think for a lot of people of my generation uh, or my set of generations, you know, really who were involved with the civil rights movement and the peace movement and so on. But there's a kind, even though we, we see that younger people have this extraordinary diversity and we really celebrate it, but at the same time, there's a kind of a, a generational disconnect that there's not a lot of intergenerational dialogue between uh, the hip-hop culture and our culture. And so, frankly, I'm ignorant about it. And, and part of why I wanted to talk with you is because I felt such a deep, really spiritual connection with you. I thought, this is somebody who can help me learn about this cultural divide, which doesn't make any sense to me because our values are so profoundly shared. Well, they are. They, they are. So let me, let's start, this is a, an election year, and as a matter of fact, as we speak, uh, uh, in October of 2010, we're uh, about two weeks away from an election, a big election, and the Hip Hop Caucus uh, is involved in uh, engaging young people in urban communities in elections. Um, so uh, from that specific point of view, uh, what are you learning right now about, uh, about the situation, about your efforts to engage young people in this election? What we, what we learned and um, what we are learning in this election cycle um, is that um, on one hand, there's a tremendous amount of excitement in which young people are now 
and have been to some degree, but now in greater numbers, paying attention to the process. Um, on the bad side, <laughs> because they're paying attention to the process, <laughs> there is some, there's a lot of young people who are becoming very cynical and disillusioned with the process. Uh, the amount of money being put into this election um, and making it seem like one's voice does not matter. Um, um, the there's still the generational divide and the ability to have new leadership coming up who is progressive and young replacing some of the old leadership is still a bit of a struggle and they see themselves even fighting with people who are who are you know 80s in their 80s and still in a position and people who are in their 60s have been waiting for 40 years and they think it's you know they think in right and to some degree they think it's their time um, and now they're, they're now in their 60s. They've been waiting for those from their 80s, and they're still, and that's that causes a problem, particularly for young people um, who should be emerging into that into those leadership positions. Now, when you speak of people in their 80s who are still holding positions, I'm just trying to figure out which part of the culture that would be true of. Um, I mean, I think you know, I, you know, there's a number of members, particularly of in the Congressional Black Caucus, I'm speaking of. I see. Really speaking from a tradition of communities of color. A number of of those representatives who were, I think, from like from Charlie Rangel to you know my good friend Maxine uh, 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 Waters um, to John Conyers. So you're speaking of of uh, uh, the African American political leadership specifically in that specifically yes specifically right. uh, around I mean that's yes mm-hmm. and I would say there's other I mean it's not just African American I think mm-hmm. there's a number of other sure uh, uh, you know who've been around for quite some time and I'm not uh, there's nothing wrong with um, uh, having experience right clearly we need that and but I think that there also to be room shaped to bring in new voices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think because of all of that, there is somewhat of a little bit where young people are now are, are still maybe a little apprehensive. Mm-hmm. But I think overall, I think that, you know, from our position, you know, we recognize that the generation, the, the millennials, as we call it, the generation born primarily in the 80s and a little bit into the 90s, um, that generation is actually larger than the baby boomers. Um, and so by the time they come into full age, uh, when they, a voting age, um, they will be um, half of the electorate. And so we're very excited so that by 2020, um, uh, if we can continue to mobilize and organize and energize this next generation, um, particularly those those who were born in the 80s um, and the 90s, they were very hopeful for the future. And so I guess, must we are looking at it currently, yes, what's happening now with the midterms, and we need, we need for young people to be engaged and to be voting, because we also know that if you vote in three consecutive um, elections, then you become a lifelong voter. So we want to get those who won in 2008 to vote in 2010 and to vote in 2012, because we know that those 
most you know most of those people will become lifelong voters by the trend. And so, but we're also very excited about what it looks like for 2020 and 2018 and beyond, because then the young people now that we're looking at, who are this beautiful multiracial, multi-gender, multi-belief, different orientations, um, that generation will be in a position where then hopefully we'll be able to really begin to grab some around some power. And for us as an organization, Hip Hop Caucus, um, um, more than 60% of our membership, um, actually 70% of our membership, um, was, is, is 40 and under, and half of our membership was, is, was born in the 80s. So, we're very, so clearly we're very excited about the bulk of our, our base, um, you know, uh, uh, coming to age, so to speak. And how would you how would you describe uh, the cultural values of the millennials? The cultural values. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say you know, very, very strong. And I would say that it's very different. They don't have the same. Um, they're not as connected to institutions. So there is an institutional void. That they have, they don't seem to have the same need for like religious institutions, or even and and rightfully so to some degree, because they don't, they can go online. Uh, they don't have the same need for uh, uh, academic institutions. You know, uh, one of the largest, the ones who are getting the most African Americans now in college degree, that's the University of Phoenix, which is a totally online. So that's the which is causing some problems because we're now dealing with the historical black colleges and, and how they're operating. Um, and so there's a, there's a void of institutions. But from a cultural standpoint, I think they're very connected um, that way. Um, and, I, and I think that there's, t- you know, to me, there's a, a certain amount of excitement um, around what this, what this generation will be able to do in the future. Now, when we talked, when we met a few weeks ago at an environmental grantmakers meeting, and uh, you uh, came and sat down at the table where I was sitting, and yeah. we just had this sense of connection with each other. And part of it was that we found we, we shared um, a, a kind of very universal, uh, ecumenical, if you will, perspective on spiritual, uh, spiritual beliefs or views. And that would seem to me to fit with what you're saying about the millennials. Is that it, true? It, it does fit, Michael. You would you would be a you would be a you'd be a great millennial. Uh huh. Well, maybe <laughs> I can would. maybe I can just uh, rejuvenate in that particular way. Yes, you, you should. You should, you fit in very well. And I think it's very important because I think that a lot of um, millennials, um, their you know, they are sometimes, they, they have seen institutions and, um, and they've seen a very different, they have a different, very different viewpoint of the institution, but they still very much believe in the spirit. And I actually think sometimes they are so much more spiritual when I come across them. Um, and I'm somebody who's, you know, I've gone to, I got a, I got a, you know, a degree in, in divinity. <laughs> and so, uh, so I studied that quite some time in seminary. So, you know, but I'm able to see this generation um, 
being very, very spiritual. And I think it's very important as we as, as humans, as we as people evolve, that our spirituality should be evolving as well. And I think that as we become much more global and are able to embrace different faiths and different beliefs and to see the beauty um, in those, and I think that is another way of tearing down the walls. So if you're in certain Asian cultures or you're in African cultures or you're in European cultures uh, or in Middle Eastern or wherever you may be or you're in Northern American, wherever you, you may be, you're able to really embrace. And the one thing you're to see, I think, is that there's a connection. There isn't any part of the world where they're not trying to connect to spirit. And I think that alone is very, is very profound, um, that all over the globe, when there was no connection um, with each other, they were all seeking something. And I think that is enough in itself to let you to, 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 to be seeking something or to, or to even appreciate um, you know, that type of spirit. And I think that's one thing that I think the progressive movement, more than anything, is lacking is that sense of spirit. I think that's why we were, I, I felt, to me, when, you know, I clearly did not know you um, at the dinner and, you know, was sitting down at a table because you were, you know, the only one there, I think, at the particular time. So I think I would just, I, you know, my nature was to, I'm here alone, so, you know, this guy looks like he's alone. So we Two can, pilgrims, right? Two pilgrims. <laughs> yeah, we can sit together <laughs> and at least it's going to be alone. But, <laughs> right. but I, I, think, I think it was much more than that. And I am a person who's becoming much more mature in faith to know and run by providence that our, our steps are ordered. And I know that my steps are ordered, and I believe that. And so I even think that even in that occasion that we came together, that um, it was it was exactly what it what it needed to be, and I think that's the one thing that the progressive movement is lacking the most. I think it's the most troubling thing to me. Um, it is the most dangerous flaw in our movement is that in our ability to definitely want to see change, our ability to to to, to cry, our ability to hurt when we see injustice is magnificent. Our ability to sometimes when we have degrees from Harvard or Howard or, or Stanford or Spelman, our abilities to put that to the side and to fight for the least of these is magnificent. But our problem overall sometimes that we then only draw that strength from ourselves and we don't draw anything from the invisible. And I think that is one of the reasons why sometimes we are not as successful now as a movement as it was for the, the movement of the civil rights movement, the movement of the labor movement, the movement of the women's rights movement, the, the abolitionists, I think always in those movements that have been so successful was that they were able to pull on something invisible, not just to pull on themselves. And we see that so much, and there's so much burnout within the progressive movement, or there's so much instantaneous discouragement that you see that. And I think that that's the one thing that if I could... And I hope to infuse. I hope that's what I'm here for. I hope that's the reason why I'm on this little blue rocket this time, <laughs> that this is what I can inject into um, what I believe is this powerful movement that we have. And I actually, as you know, I deeply agree with you. Uh, I think there's a historical fact that the secular orientation of the progressive movement came from all kinds of historical sources. 
But I, I couldn't agree with you more that it has, in general, been cut off from faith and spiritual values, and that it has paid a, a great price for that, not only in terms of internal resources to draw on, but also in terms of the capacity to connect to the large majority of Americans who are people of spirit. I, I really agree with that. I yeah. think that's the, and I think it's the... I'm not sure why we gave... I wouldn't say we gave it up, but I think that we there's a tendency that, um, and and I understand, and I and I and there are people. I have brothers and sisters who are who are, who are agnostic, who are atheists, who are mystic, who are Jewish, who are come from from pagan backgrounds, who are different beliefs, and I think that there has been there has been so much discomfort in being able to be who you are. And I think that that's the power of where we're moving now, the progressive movement, that as we are celebrating, that I think that we are now in, in the process of moving away because we felt isolated and we felt comfort that, you know, I'm not, I don't believe the way this one believes and I'm not going to be persecuted. We kind of pulled away, but I still want to help. I think now, I think as we are getting more people who are, much more spiritual, and we are injecting that. Um, and the more that we take, more risk. And, and, and the more that we, you know, God is the God of the oppressed. So the more that we work in, with the oppressed, then the spirit must come into the process. Yes, I, and I also agree with you that, that part of the diversity includes the agnostics and the atheists uh, who, are, you know, who have important traditions of their own strong, wonderful traditions that they bring to it. But somehow, the diversity did not include in the progressive movement, I think we're both saying, uh, a sufficiency of those connections to spirit that have been so powerful in previous social movements. Yeah, no, yeah. And, and that's the thing. And, yeah. and, and, and that's where we're, it's very revealing in how we're operating. And it's, I think it's the reason why we are jumping sometimes um, and we're looking quickly for our, our own solutions mm -hmm. being patient and they would say in a lot of tradition listening for the wind or listening for that still voice or listening for that for, for those next steps I think it's the, and that's the reason why our movement sometimes um, you know we don't, we're, we're missing that and I, and I, and I, I will say this though there is a tendon, I think there is a tendency. I have been at a number of rallies when I have been asked, and it's funny, and more of my story is, you know, to, well, let me say this, I've been asked to pray a lot more at rallies. And it's funny because, you know, I was persecuted for my faith, and, and not even for my faith, my belief, but for my culture on my faith. Because when I first came into this process, around 10 years ago, um, you know, hip-hop was, and still is, was demonized and was seen as not, you couldn't put hip-hop as a culture alongside your faith. And for me, it was, those two things go side, wherever there's oppressed or there's oppression, and that, that's where I must be. And we must, if, for me, uh, as a Christian, the one thing that I take most solace in, particularly with, with the, the story of Christ, if you just take it, is that he was, came out of Nazareth, 
and that means that he came out of the ghetto, <laughs> and he was poor, and he was around poor people, and he was around fishermen who were the worst people, and tax collectors, that he was around the roughest of the roughest. And so if you take solace, even in that story, um, to me, then that's where you need to be. Um, and so for me, it's, it's not so much hanging out with kings and queens, but about hanging out with, you know, those who are downtrodden. And I think that's where I've gotten pushback. So I understand. And I would go to a church, and even though I was a former uh, chaplain in the Air Force, even though I had gone to uh, Howard Divinity and got a master's degree, and even though I could speak uh, and translate in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and, uh, you know, all these different things, and I was a, one of the top scholars in dealing with biblical archaeology, I would go to a church, <laughs> and the men that would introduce me as Reverend Yearwood, um, president of the Hip Hop Caucus, I would see so many black faces. I was talking, they had a black church. They would be turned off, um, and I would say, "Wow, if I could get that reception, then how is that 16 year old? What's the reception that he's getting as well?" And that is probably what I think transformed me as well in my belief. I think that then kind of thrust me outside of the institution and really began to make me seek more for the spiritual aspects. Rev, you were, you were born in Louisiana, is that correct? I was. Could, could you tell us a, a little about where you were born, what kind of family you came from, and just about how you came up to be a, a, a student in theology at Howard? Well, you know, um, I was the first person in my family uh, born in this country. And uh, Where did your family come from? They came from the West Indies. They came from the island of Trinidad and Tobago. Uh-huh. And my father uh, ran in the, uh, he ran track, and he ran in the 68 Olympics uh-huh. in Mexico City. And was, for him, was profoundly changed um, by at that time, the the, the American team uh, uh, fist in the air on the podium. Uh, it was profoundly changed about what was happening. Like anybody, any young person, who was changed, and that was a another aspect of how culture can impact, mm-hmm. uh, how one's cultural expression can it impact one's political experience, and so that impacted him, and he wanted to then come to this country. And study, and so he came to Grambling, and he brought um, my mother with him, um, and then they had me, uh-huh. <laughs> and so I was born here, um, uh, here in uh, Shreveport. They were going to school in, at Grambling State University, and then um, so I lived there and and uh, grew up, and we wasn't there for a long time. He stayed as anybody as a student with the school. And then he began to work in the area in Louisiana. And then he got a, uh, an opportunity to go for his master's. Um, and my mom as well, because she had finished her school. Uh, their master's and their Ph.D. Up in, the, up in the New York, Buffalo area. And then my mom went to Canisius College. And my dad went to Buffalo State, where he got his, uh, they got their Ph.D.s. My mom got her Ph.D. in psychology. And my dad got his Ph.D. in African-American studies, which then brought me to D.C. because he became, he started teaching. Uh, she was began teaching um, at uh, Maryland, 
and and in, in other places in the in the Maryland area. My dad was teaching at Howard University, and that's how we came to D.C. <laughs> and so that is that is my roundabout story. And it it was sitting in those classrooms, um, and so many people at the time, uh, Sophie Carmichael, Kwame Ture was still alive, and I was a young kid, and I had the opportunity. Well, I really had no choice either um, <laughs> of sitting in the African-American Studies Department and listening to all the classrooms and hearing the stories um, as a young guy. And I think that probably had the most molding. My father had a very different faith at the time. He was, uh, I wouldn't say he was a a Marxist, but he definitely had a different viewpoint of of institutions, um, of religious institutions. Um, and so I think that also had a huge play. My mother was a very spiritual woman and was involved, as was my family from the Caribbean, was very engaged with the, uh, with the, with the church. My dad was on the outside, but when I grew up, I became very much enamored with the power of the church um, during the civil rights movement. Um, and I think that is what drew me. So when I went to college and when I went, probably went to divinity school, um, um, and I would do a number of things at the time as an activist. I was a young activist, so I was, <laughs> you know, leading. I was SCA. I was. I had a little bit of uh, athletic ability, so I played basketball in college, and I also was SCA president. But I also was in leading protests <laughs> on the college campus as well. But um, that all led to then when I wanted to, I was going to go to law school. My father had then also gone to law school. He had, he had his PhD, um, and then he was little delusioned with Howard um, and how they were operating around the African-American Studies Department. And he went back and got his law degree because he began to recognize that policy was key for change. And I think that then helped shape me a little bit, too, as well. And my mother had always talked about policy and the importance of policy. Now, that extraordinary success story actually reflects the extraordinary impact that the Caribbean uh, uh, African-American community has had in American, African-American history and, and culture and life. Yes. Um, it's been, as you know, an extraordinary impact. And I wanted to ask you, uh, as a first-generation uh, U.S.-born um, uh, uh, Caribbean ancestry, uh, African American. Uh, how did you experience yourself in relationship to a black culture and black community more broadly in the United States? You know, that's a great question, and I would say, and that's probably is true for a lot of um, immigrants of a darker hue. Um, I, and I think to this day, when people see me, they clearly see an African-American. And I look like, uh, I would say, you know, it looks like an Mm -hmm. African-American and sound like and don't have that. But I definitely have that background um, of being, coming from an immigrant as an as an immigrant to this country. I definitely have that background of having that West Indian blood. And so I think that is probably what makes me a little different. 
And even from a that I don't have a sense that this is the only country, this is the only way. And I think that that's very important. And I think that there are a lot of people um, like Stokey Carmichael, like Kwame Ture, and others um, who come out of that Shirley Chisholm, who come out of that background. Colin Powell. Colin Powell. Right. Who come out of that background in which I think that kind of reflects a different mindset. So even from the viewpoint, I can understand how the traditional African-American can be beat down because the way the system is designed, a lot of times it's designed to really beat you from the cradle to the grave. And so for me, I, did, I always had a, and to this day, I have a very different viewpoint that, this, that while I am, you know, uh, I appreciate and love um, you know, uh, you know, this, the, some of the good things this country, this country has done some rough things, and, but some of the good things and what this country can bring, um, I, I, I still have a, uh, there's still a very close connection for me um, to the West Indian culture and community. And do you think that it has something to do with, um, in the West Indies, uh, that somehow, um, for I'm sure complex reasons, that cultural self-esteem was more intact in some way. It wasn't beaten down in the same way that it was so badly beaten down in the United States. Uh, yes. I mean, for example, I mean, the, the West Indies and the Caribbean, they've had a black president for quite some time. Right. So <laughs> the idea of even what that means to the Caribbean cultures or uh, even in the African countries that having a black president isn't really a new thing. Uh, and the, the history of slavery was also different in it the West Indies. Yeah. I mean, well, it, 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 it was different because it, it, in a lot of cases, like Haiti, hmm. um, and throughout the Caribbean, um, you were able to, people were able to throw off slavery faster. That's right. There was, it was, you have less, less people who are oppressing, so they can pretty much say, listen, well, this is a small island. They, could, they can count. There's a hundred of us, and there's two of them. Right. <laughs> so, so they could, they could they, I'm sure at some point in time it clicked that they could uh, overcome uh, you know, their oppressors. In this country, that, that, that wasn't quite the case. And even when slavery was changed, that then would bring about different types of slavery. The prison industrial complex would emerge in the north or the south, and the different types of slavery would emerge. So I agree with you. I think that's one of the reasons for me why I, had, I know I think that I've been successful. Not saying that, I mean, there are clearly African-Americans in this country who are outstanding, who are just born and raised in this, and, and have made it. And Absolutely. Made it Absolutely. Uh, and I don't... One, I know sometimes there has been a little bit of a riff and divide because of the, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes of the West Indian cultures and the people think it's different. And particularly now, the African community is now getting a lot of that. I, I, think that's, I think that would be a falsehood. I think that as we move forward, though, I think that we must understand that I think that coming out of, as you said it quite well, that, 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 that self-esteem I think that of having or that or the ability to see one's culture where you are it isn't so much you are the minority 
I think is very, very, very powerful. Right. Now, the Huffington Post named you one of 10 green changemakers, um, along with a, a lot of other very eminent people. Uh, and you've uh, been very active in the media, um, interviewed on CNN and uh, BT Tonight, uh, PBS, Fox, BBC, uh, Hardball with Chris Matthews. You've been featured in the Washington Post and the New York Times and Vibe and so forth. So uh, you've, uh, you know President Obama. Uh, there are, you know, you really have uh, become a leading spokesperson uh, for a millennial hip-hop generation. What has been the impact on you as a person of, of taking on this uh, quite high-profile uh, role with all the responsibilities and impact that it has when you're in the spotlight that way? First, it didn't just start um, yesterday. Right. Um, I think that that's many people, uh, when they see you, when they finally see you, um, could, 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 could think it just happens. I think that for me, this has been a, a long road um, of development, um, particularly of fighting for people and what that means to me and the, the God-given um, skills and abilities that are natural for me. Um, one, I guess, is my speaking ability or, and two is my organizing Ability. I think that um, those those two things have been emerging for quite some time, and it's funny because there are times along this road when it has been very, 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 very difficult, and you are very lonely and you're ostracized, and you're sometimes feel very weird and and, and singled out along the way. And and you, you don't like this road, and it is very painful at times. It is still sometimes very painful um, as this, as you go along. But I think in that, the, the the true sense of of the gift, and for whatever reason um, that the Almighty um, has shown favor, the ability to to have that platform is one that is amazing and I think over time it has grown and I think the thing for me what I have seen and I don't say this I know a lot of young people in my generation have become and are very eager to become you know out there and be seen and they do this as by being commentators and I think that's one of the problems as well, because they just want to they want to go and get a blog, or they want to they have a PR, and they want to do certain things. My way was very difficult, <laughs> and it has brought tremendous hardship to me personally. And it's tough because you don't you're not at sometimes you don't it takes a long time to get to this point. But the difference though is that I think that one thing I will never ever do is sell out my people. And I'm always going to be in solidarity with my movement because I had to come up, as the old folks would say, on the rough side of the mountain. And so I think that now it's funny to be 
getting, and I think that most of the reasons why I got those types of accolades or those types of interviews or those types of positions or those features um, is because for me, and this is my belief, is because when I put people first and I put humanity first before myself, these things come. When people put themselves first and they're hustling to get the spotlight and the limelight, they'll get it for a season and they'll get it for a second. But when you put, when you recognize that it has that all of these accolades, all of these interviews, they have nothing to do with anything about me. And that it is truly, in my belief, it is simply a platform because it is needed to help the people who will never have the opportunity to speak for themselves. And when you're given the opportunity to speak for that child uh, who lost his life in Detroit because of pollution, or that mother in Chicago who has asthma or getting heat stroke, or that brother in the Bronx who's, who has all kind of illnesses or in Oakland or wherever, then that is why, and that is the only reason why, if you understand how the Almighty works, that that is the only reason why this platform, that is the only reason why I think I've been giving Huffington Post, or the only reason why whoever else wants to add me to their list. And I'm grateful. I don't, I don't want you to stop. Thank you. Because that allows me to get another, a, a larger platform to then speak truth to power. And speak truth to power no matter what color power is. Because it's not about just about speaking truth to power on one side, but even for our progressive movement, being able to, being able to speak truth to power there as well. You mentioned several times how hard this road has been for you, and I believe it. But could you give us an example of uh, one of those hard times and what you learned from it? So uh, one of the hard things to do was in creating the Hip Hop Caucus. Um, it is now uh, has grown because it's grown because of the young people in the movement. Got seven hundred thousand members it at does. least. It yeah, seven hundred thousand. And field teams in forty-eight cities across yeah. thirty states. And 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 one almost almost besides those of us who work in the office for pittance, almost ninety-nine percent volunteering. Right. And it's amazing. And when we do events, people show up. But I think the thing there is that because one of the hard things was that we weren't part of the network. We were on the outside. And one of the hard things there was that for the first two or three years, you know, there was didn't have grant writers, didn't have people to do fancy annual reports. We're just doing the work. We spent 90% of the time doing programmatic work and 10% of the time doing fundraising. Well, a lot of groups have spend 90% of the time doing fundraising, 10%, right. 10% of the time. And we were really looking for our people in our community to empower them and to merge. And so it became very difficult because we didn't have any resources and there was no money. And it was hard. It was hard because you would see your, some of your peers, some of your people in other organizations who weren't getting, who weren't doing even half it, and people were just giving them millions, literally. And then they were upset, oh, there's no results. And here we are, it would take literally sometimes 20,000 
um, and go across the whole country to do Make Hip Hop Not War on a bus and almost died in the bus. And you know, we would do things that were literally taking pittance and pennies. And to this day, to right, even right now, uh, you know, I would hear people talk about, you know, they gave millions of dollars for rallies or millions of dollars for this, and the Hip Hop Caucus would continue to grow and would, would, wouldn't get anything. Um, so it, it would be very tough. It, it was very tough. And it's hard because you have these young people who are here, either volunteering and they're working for nothing in some cases. And, 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 and you're seeing results. And you, can, you would get discouraged because then you would want to think that, why, why are we doing this? Because, you know, here we are um, doing what we need to do. But then something inside would say, don't give up. You're doing the right thing. And at some point in time, somebody's going to recognize. And you're going to have, you know, you're going to have your advocates. And at some point in time, you, you, you know, because there's no PR team in New York that helps me get Huffington Post Game Changer or get Ebony 100 or get The Root or this guy or get Utney or, or on the hip-hop side, get the, you know, I'm the first reverend to be in the Power, the, the, the Source Magazine, Power 30, which was kind of cool. It was really even cooler than Huffington Post. <laughs> You're sitting there because, you know, it's kind of fun for me. Yeah. <laughs> You're sitting there next to Diddy and Jay-Z being right. one of the most powerful people in hip-hop. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's great on, on all sides, but it, it's, that's been hard. But I think it's changing. It's, it is changing, and I get, uh, I get, I get tremendous energy from, you know, young people who I see transforming before my eyes as activists. I get tremendous energy at seeing, um, you know, the possibility of change and what we can do. And so I think that, but I do think that has been hard. It has been hard, little, because I think that we have a very much a, um, uh, to some degree, the, as, we, as we talked about, the, 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 and that's why, why I enjoy sitting next to you, because I, I, I think sometimes even from the funding on both sides of the progressive movement, there's this, almost this game that's being played, and it's not serious. People are not really digging deep down to know who's who, who's what. And we're missing so many powerful things that we can get um, if we were to dig a little deeper. We've got just a minute or two left, Rev. Uh, any final thoughts on the future of the shared work in front of us? Uh, what do you see the direction as being? You know, uh, I, I think you know. I think we have a, a long way to go, but I think it's a great road. Uh, I remind, remember Dr. King and his hopeful anthem, which sang uh, the song "Old Freedom." Oh, freedom, oh, freedom, open me, open me. And before I be afraid, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free, and be free. No more killing, no more shooting, over me, over me. And I think that we continue to fight for freedom, and we fight for justice, and we fight to end poverty and pollution, and we fight to end wars. I'm excited that we continue to fight for freedom. And I, I know what's going to happen, and I'm so encouraged about this generation that it will happen. Uh, uh, change will happen in the 21st century. Reverend Lennox Yearwood, thank you so much for being with us at the New School.